Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 21st, 2021, episode 188, Fly Me to the Moon. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner. I hope you're having a good day. Doing well. One could assume that you're having a good day. Generally, we all have good days as we move along in life. But if you're not having a good day, I hope this time you choose to spend with us helps to make things a little bit better. Today is February 21st, 2021. When I made a note of that for the recording, I thought to myself, it is 2-21-2021. And that kind of tickled my senses in some way. I kind of love the discovery of some of those oddball date combinations that turn up in time, especially like today's when they're a little bit unexpected. Ah, late February. Still snow on the ground here. Unlike the past few springs, this year has been one where we've seen our fair share of snow. And it's not been the few inches here or a few inches there kind of snow, but the honest-to-goodness 8 inches, 12 inches, 16 inches, get your boots on. Yeah, the ground's got to be covered snow for weeks and weeks kind of winter. Last weekend was the Daytona 500. It's a true national holiday by my personal way of thinking. And I have this track record of thinking about whether it snows or not on that weekend. I relate this to the notion in some way, as one might consider if it's going to snow for Christmas. You see, my oldest brother Joe did something I have always envied but yet to accomplish. Leave New Jersey on a cold February day and drive from a wintry snow mess to the beaches of Florida. I remember him recalling the tales of leaving in a winter coat and arriving in Daytona after driving straight through in shorts and a t-shirt. I think that'd be a cool rite of passage and honestly, I seriously, I'm not just saying this, seriously was considering that trip this year. But alas, COVID. Maybe 2022 will be the year. As it is here in New Jersey, it's been cold. I know, weather again. But I told you last time, beekeepers like to talk about the weather. I only bring this up to say that there was a day, the one occasional day you get in the winter here and there, where the temps warmed up and the bees were flying. Dorothy, man, they're flying! It was kind of like a twister moment there for a second. I loved Philip. Seymour Hoffman's performance in that movie, Twister. The movie was kind of campy or whatever, but he was so good in that character. So all of the hives, each and every one, were flying last week. The undertakers were taking and the bees were doing their duty. D-U-T-Y, that is. But I suppose it could have been duty, as in D-O-O-D-Y because the evidence of dead bees on the fresh fallen snow and signs of bee poo from cleansing flights were all over in front of each and every hive. Yes, all is well in bee land and, well, spring, it's here. It's just about here. I could smell it in the air. I could taste it. I can sense it in the fabric of my being. And I'm kind of thinking the bees can too. I want to believe that these Last few spates of storms in February will lead to a glorious explosion of bee nirvana in March, and I'm kind of hoping Puxatani Phil will knock it off and let the spring come. Six more weeks of winter. Blah. Mid-March, his prediction is just too painful. I need it now. <laughs> oh, hi. Almost forgot this is a beekeeping podcast, right? And there are beekeeping things to talk about. Perhaps I should have some focus and get to the matter at hand. Let's hit a quick agenda and then get to work. Round tables. Using pallets for beekeeping equipment, is it a good idea? Round table two, where the wind takes you. Dream of things you want to do with beekeeping. 
and do it without a map. Achieve your goals, and I present a case that demonstrates you can do it. For number three, I have a favor to ask. I want a baseline set up on how to do a webcam. I'm looking to crowdsource a solution. Maybe you can help me. For topics in this episode, number one is a recap on our journey to use beeswax to make soap. I'm also going to share the wonder of how honeybees fly. And I think, as I sit here, that I think I threw something else in the mix, but I can't remember what it is. But we'll figure that out along the way. So let's go. Let's head into roundtables and run through a couple of them. Roundtable number one. I am one of those people who constantly looks at objects on the side of the road. I'm also that guy that has a large stash of wood pieces in various shapes and sizes stashed away in my garage, and I'm proud to say over the years that I have probably used about 25% of that stock to build things for beekeeping or different projects around the house. We had a broken ceiling fan that had a remote control, and yesterday I took that down and did some work to correct that situation, and I took the broken ceiling fan apart, saved all the nuts and bolts, and, you know, there was a remote control that had a control box with wires, and I'm thinking to myself, what do I want to set for a remote control? That's, yeah. There's one piece of material I've seen over and over again that I've never took the bait on. That object, which tempts me, are used pallets. The reason I've stayed away from them is that I know that some pallet manufacturers used to chemically treat the wood and any use for beekeeping projects is kind of really not a good plan. Now I'm not inclined that that treating lumber has a place in the apiary in any form or plan. Uh, that seems common sense to me. Now I'm not saying that it's a hundred percent thing to do and follow. I'm sure that somehow, somewhere, someone has found a good use, but I'm saying for me personally, I have simply avoided it. I've always been concerned that you'll find an old pallet that got treated with methyl ethyl death, or that the pallet was sitting and methyl ethyl death was sitting on it and dripped on it, and I just don't want that stuff in my bee yard. That being the case, though, there are some pallets that you could use. So say, for example, a pallet that a motorcycle is shipped on. That stuff's all brand new, good wood. And there's a place along Route 31, not too far from me, that brings in snowblowers and chainsaw equipment or whatever. And sometimes their stuff comes on pallets, and I have sourced some wood from that wood pile. But typically, they take those pallets and break them all up. They're not the standard pallet pallet that everybody, if I say pallet, you think of. That being the case, it's so tempting to see all that wood out there, and I've always wondered, is there some sort of utility that I'm passing up? I call this round table palatable because I found a new resource that says, yeah, maybe it's possible to decide whether or not a pallet that you find along the road is safe. To recycle. Well, let me see if I can explain this. The first thing to say about a pallet is you have to consider your purpose. Again, things that are stacked on pallets and primarily they are simpatico with conveyance by forklift. You know, who owns a forklift? Industry. So you might think about the substrate. One really has to consider what was on the pallet and not strictly how it was treated. I would not, as an example, think that if pallets were used in a chemical company operation, that they would have any place in an apiary or more to the point of that website. People are using them for gardening walls and other stuff. So the first unknown about sourcing something on the side of the road is due to the long-term nature, pallets are supposed to last for years. They could have been around the block and you may not know that that stack with the free sign sitting along the road, it's just not clean enough to use because you don't understand the history. Given pallets are designed with an eye toward being used outside, many of them are subject to some sort of treatment to make them last. The preparation of a pallet comes in different forms. Chemical treatment path is just one way. 
Another path is to simply heat treat them. For our use, this would be, I'm going to say, ideal. When you look at construction of a pallet, they are built in different ways. Some of them are cheaply made. Some of them are desirable lumber. It's just the best way to say it. They're thick cut. They're made of good species of wood. And if you can only find free pallets that are kiln dried, made from hardwoods, or sometimes as a rule, it would be a no-brainer with the right precautions. There are pallets that I've seen that are made out of cherry and oak and are as nice as any lumber you would find in a box store and sometimes better. And the major beams in that pallet structure are one inch or thicker. I could really see a nice hive stand or a top bar hive made from those slats. And actually online, I have seen people doing that kind of stuff. Let's suppose that you had a nice stack and like me, you wonder if they might be something you could throw in the back of your truck. The fact is there are some pallets that have codes stamped on them and it indicates how they're prepared. Someone like the codes you might see on the back of a tanker truck on the road that indicates what the hazard is of the content that's being transported. Some pallet manufacturers use industry standard symbols to show pallet uh, preparation. The symbols unlock if the pallets were kiln dried, were treated with fumigation. By the way, if you see those stamps of MB, stay away from those as that indicates methyl bromide fumigated. These stamps, they even convey in some respects how the lumber was sourced because the industry is trying to be assuring uh, buyers that the wood is known not to carry invasive species of pests into the area. So apparently, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. You can get a clean pallet and it appears with some due diligence. You might be able to figure out its backstory. Now, you know, if I saw a pallet alongside the road, I would kind of look at the organization it was sitting in. I might even walk inside and ask somebody, what do you know about those pallets and tell them why? You want to make sure that you don't poison the bees and this and that. And my guess is the people who put them out there will be friendly enough to give you the backstory. A lot of times people, uh, companies or whatever, get these pallets and they've only been used once to transport whatever it is. It's hard to say. And it's worth possibly taking that effort to go knock on the door and ask. As for me, I'm kind of in the penalty box. <laughs> The boss has told me that if I drag anything other, you know, than, than like gold home from the side of the road, then I'm going to be disowned. So no pallets for me in my future. I have one related spin to add to this topic, and it concerns plastic pallets. Some corporations don't want the risk of tainted wood, just like us, in their clean warehouses. And they've switched to these manufactured plastic pallets that do not absorb nasties. If you've seen these pallets, and you're the creative type like me, you might have a number of ideas how you can upcycle these things. I have an eye on one in someone's stash, and I've laid claim to it. One of these days, I'll figure out how to get it out of their house, because it won't fit my Honda CRV. I have five or six ideas of how I might use these, but yeah, that's something for another episode. I think we need to move on. So in the end, all of this stuff I've been jibbering and jabbering about is look for a guide about pallet markings in the show notes. The website 1001pallets.com has a feature on pallet safety to go along with their projects which outlines the construction and markings that is used in today's pallet industry. And it includes uh, links for our European friends. They have a rundown of their markings too. So episode 188, look in the show notes for a link to 1001pallets.com. Roundtable number two, trust the awesomeness of your spirits. 
There's a TV channel on our Xfinity service called Motor Trend and being a car enthusiast. Spent a little time decompressing by watching the shows about hot rods on there. Some of my favorite shows are when they fabricate things with their own hands and solve problems and try to figure that out. And one show in particular personifies that. It's called Full Custom Garage. The host of the show, Ian Russell, builds cars that simply don't exist and from scrap parts and things that he has laying around. Sound familiar? He starts with parts and then adds another part and then another and another. And by the end of the episode, he has a car that resembles something you might have seen in maybe a fantasy Hot Wheels design as a kid. It's truly amazing what he comes up with. Taking this notion to beekeeping, I received an email recently from Brendan Lotterock asking me some questions about my top bar hive that I have in service, and it dawned on me after I responded to him that there's a little bit of Ian in me when it comes to how that top bar hive got built. In response to Brendan, it dawned on me that the hive design and build was actually really organic. To tell the story of that hive, Sharon's friend Judy installed a floor and had a lot of oak tongue and groove scraps left over. I like wood, as I just talked about, so that one I dragged home and had in the garage for quite a few years. I coupled the idea of using that wood to building a top bar that would be able to mate up with Langstroth hive equipment, boxes, and the idea was born. I built the two box ends, glued them together, two slabs, and then literally mocked up the hive from the parts and the pieces that I had in the garage. The bottom of the hive has some wood from old deck boards that I had in the stash. The trim that surrounds the roof came from a bathtub surround that we replaced at some point while renovating our home. And the cool thing is, is I didn't buy a single element from the store to build it. I remember the concept and struggling, laboring over what angle to set with the sides of the hive because if you set it wrong, the bees will glue the comb to the actual box. Now it's a Kenyan style top bar hive with slope sides. It's not a horizontal hive with straight sides. Horizontal being Tanzanian style. I had an epiphany one day and went to Bob Kloss's place with a triangle measure device. And I used that to figure out the slopes of the sides, which was the biggest puzzle for me to solve. As to the size of the physical hive, I set the width and the length of the mouth of the top of the hive based on Langstroth hive dimensions. The whole design principle was that you could lift the lid and put Langstroth honey boxes over the nest chamber inside the long hive. I built this hive a few years ago and thinking back the first few years if you've listened to the show you know that it didn't do too well. I simply could not get the bees to successfully fill out the entire chamber. I will now say that in the end, I don't think I could have done that, or maybe I could have. I've seen, Bob Kloss has this hive that's literally like the size of a coffin and the bees have built it all out. But I've come to believe that smaller is better. So a little bit ago, I literally lopped off one third of the length. The 2020 season was the year that I finally put together a full game plan and knock on wood. The hive was flying last week, so we're on the cusp of overwintering and getting into the foraging season. For me, this is a culmination to get the full story of the initial vision. If things play out well, the hive will build out fully from its winter state this spring and from front to back, and then I can put my boxes on top and make some honey. Ultimately, like Ian Russell, the vision of this hive started with a Langstroth Kelly F-frame as a top bar. I had that bar and I had this extra wood and decided I was going to build a hive around the Langstroth design. So unlike a regular top bar, 
the top bar in this has opening gaps. When I take the roof off, I have two inner covers sitting side by side, long ways, over top. And I could take two honey boxes and put them on top or full size if I really wanted to. And that could be the honey chamber. My hope is, well, well this is an interesting thought. And I, I haven't thought it through because obviously this is all taking place as we go. But the full culmination of the story is I've always envisioned that I would put honey boxes over top of this. It could po be possible now that I've made the hive smaller that they may actually try to move brood up in there. And I could put two brood boxes and then later take a split but still have the the bottom hive. That's the fun of it, right? Is you made something up out of nothing and now you get to play with it. And I find that enjoyable. I really do it. So it's a full culmination of the journey that started literally a few years ago with a bar. A Kelly F-frame bar, top bar from a frame holding in my hand saying, I had to build a hive around this. And it took a moment of reflection from the conversation with Brendan to make me realize where this journey has taken us. So the last parting thoughts of this are, don't underestimate yourself. You get an idea, go out in your garage, <laughs> go out in your workshop, go down in your basement, wherever it is, get your hammers and nails out, get your saws out and have yourself a good time. It's been a fun journey. I've enjoyed it and you will too. Roundtable number three, I have a request. This is odd. I'm not telling you something. I'm asking for something. I want to set up a webcam in the apiary. Someone out there has to know how to do this. I have looked at this three or four times. And every time I look at it, there's no kind of commercial off-the-shelf product that you could buy to do this, which is really strange to me. I don't understand it. I thought people who had um, trail cameras and security cameras and weather cameras and all of that, maybe they possibly know how to do this in those industries and would sell a kit, but I just can't seem to find one. The closest thing we have is the Arlo security camera that we have on our property. Over the years, I've purchased two kits. I have two different routers set up. And the cool thing about the Arlo cameras is, one, you charge them and they last for months, and two, they wirelessly report in. But the bad news is their job, of course, is to record anything that they pick up and send it to the cloud where you can watch and get alerts. They're not on all the time, and I don't really want a recording. I just want to log in to my website or somewhere and look at the apiary anytime. And how cool would it be on bkcorner.org to have a webcam sitting there looking at my apiary 24-7? But I have yet to crack the code on how to do this. So if you know of some turnkey kit that's out there where I could put a camera and some form of... I mean, I suppose where I'm thinking about, or in some way or another, I could figure out how to get electricity out there, but ideally it would be solar-powered with some sort of battery pack. I don't want to spend a million dollars either, but, you know, I think in this thing, if I could do it, I, I might make some sort of investment. But I just have looked three or four times and come up empty, and I'm not able to figure out a good system. So do you know of one? If so, hopefully this crowdsource will help the effort. And of course, if I get a good response, I'll share it back out to everybody. So Kevin at bkcorner.org. Write me and let me know what you know about this. Roundtable number four. All hail the CCBA. You know, I look forward to certain conferences each year, and in this time of COVID, it's been tough. We don't get to go network with our friends, sit and have lunch and chat about bees and do all that stuff. Yeah, the Philly Guild one, missed that one this year. Really enjoy that show every year. The EAS conference last year, canceled. Got to go to the Maryland State meeting online this year. That was great. You know, and so it goes in these times of COVID. 
I'm happy to report that EAS appears for now to be coming to us in 2021, but the venue's been moved from about 900 miles southwest of Massachusetts, where it was originally going to be held, to Kentucky. And from what I understand, they have a limited number of slots that they can host. EAS conference tends to get quite a few people, but given COVID times, they can only host so many. But that's better than a sharp stick in your eye, as my mother used to say. I'm happy to report that our friends from Chester County, Pennsylvania, who have great conferences every year, have mustered to keep their annual conference afloat and have a spectacular lineup for March 13th. So stop what you're doing and circle your calendar. The registration's open on the website. The cost for registration, I think this is what I figured out, is $40 for non-members. But you can see what it costs there. And the lineup is well worth the investment. I'm going to rattle off some names. And if you know anything about beekeeping, you're going to recognize them. Les Crowder, Sue Kobe, Deb Delaney, Randy Oliver, Michael Palmer, Steve Rapaski, Tom Seeley, Marla Spivak, Dewey Karen. And there's others there. The speaker list rivals any of the bigger national conferences. And I really think that this is going to be a day well spent. The typical MO in a CCBA conference is they tend to run three tracks at a time. And you should be able to find whatever appeases you. It's a virtual conference, so I don't know how they're running it. But my impression was that in years past, you could pick and choose from the three different tracks. So if you want to go see someone in this track on this time slot, you can switch to the next track on the other time slot. The conference starts at 9 a.m. and it goes till 6-ish at night. And off and on throughout the day, they'll have speakers taking on various subjects. And I would assume, like I said, that you can mix and match, but read their rules on their websites. Don't rely on me. Save the date. Saturday, March 13th, and get your registration reserved early. The web address for Chesco Bees will be in the show notes, but if you want it now, it's chescobees.clubexpress.com. Hmm. I wonder if I should take in that session from Solomon Parker on how to get started in treatment-free beekeeping. Or Marla Spivak's Landscape for Bees at 2.10 p.m. that day. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for attending this thing is which track to go to. Decisions, decisions. Good job, Chester County. Nice lineup this year. That brings to an end the roundtables. Let's head over to topic number one. We'll go to the back of the book. It's soap. Yeah, let's talk about that. So topic number one, the COVID winter has provided plenty of opportunities for us to make our boxes bigger. And so far, we've checked off one or two long-standing objectives when it comes to making products with the beeswax we rendered last year. As you've heard me say not too long ago, this past winter we made our first batch of soap and now it's time to talk about it. In the grand scheme of things, our soap-making foray is kind of akin to a kindergarten approach. But even with a beginner's viewpoint of it, I have a new appreciation for the soap-making process and soap products that I see out in the industry. If you listened to the recent episode with Bob Kloss, you know that Bob was here that day because he wanted to learn how it was done. And Sharon has been reading up and studying how to make soap for a while, because originally this was her thing that she wanted to do. But in the end, um, she had distractions, and I think I ended up doing uh, most of the making. And I was glad to have Bob present, because he has acumen that I lack when it comes to chemical things and concoctions, given his career background. So making soap, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not too complicated. Prep your equipment, prep your ingredients, put it together, and voila, you've got soap. Easy peasy, but for some reason it seemed really daunting to me. And 
it had to do mostly with the lie component of the process. Like playing with electricity, which I absolutely hate in the house. I have a healthy respect for chemicals, especially ones that come with warning after warning when described in the process of making something. If you've ever read a soap book, most of them, probably because of legal reasons, have huge warnings about doing this. For us as beekeepers, if you've ever done oxalic acid vaporization, that's another place where they always tell you, wear your mask, you could damage yourself permanently and whatever. I'm not up for trying to do that kind of stuff, being permanently injured. In the case of sodium hydroxide, aka lye, you have to wear a respirator. And when they tell you about the chemical reaction, well, the book that I read did not exaggerate as to what was going to happen. If you think, ah, I could do this inside. It's too cold to work outside in the winter. Well, let me tell you, uh, no. <laughs> when we poured the lye into the water, there was a grade school exploding volcano type reaction. Which to my eyes was pretty impressive, actually, as I think back on it. Yeah, maybe I'm over glorifying it. But honestly, that chemical reaction was no joke. And when you put that lye in the water, which is part of the process, it heats up to around 200 degrees in spectacular fashion. Now, it's been over two months since the day we made the soap, but I do remember the reaction, the plume of gas and the reaction in the jar. And I'm emphasizing this to tell you, you need to heed the warnings and follow the safety precautions. Don't be shy of this one. Now, all that aside, making soap follows a predictable process. You prep the soap ingredients, which are made up of oils, fats, and beeswax, in the proportions for the recipe you're following. You don or put on gloves, eyewear, a long sleeve shirt, and a protective gas mask with the right cartridges, and you prep the lye. Then, and this is key, you ensure that the base you made and the lye that you just prepared come to consistent temperatures before you combine them. For the basic soap recipe we followed from the book Soap, soap, soap Poisoning, sorry, I knew that was going to come out somewhere. <laughs> Every time I say the word soap, that movie comes back. Ralphie, what was it that brought you to this lowly state? It was, it was soap poisoning. Ah, sorry. Where was I? Yeah, for the basic soap recipe we followed, it was from the book Soap Making for Beginners by Kelly Cable. That's the one we used. It said to let both mixtures come to around 110 degrees Fahrenheit before introducing them to each other. So to make this, I melted beef tallow, coconut oil, olive oil, grapeseed oil, sweet almond oil, and beeswax over a double boiler. And then I held them in temperature. That's why I used a double boiler. We went outside, Bob and I, prepped the lye, which peaked at 200 degrees. And then we let it cool to 110 before stirring the two together. As you combine them, our recipe said to blend them for two minutes or until the mixture thickened up. Now, before you do this, of course, you got to have your molds prepped and your fragrances prepped, whatever you're going to do. The chemical reaction process that results in soap forming is called saponification. To saponify is defined as turning a fat and or oils into soap by reaction with an alkali. It's a Kevin moment. Perhaps the most daunting part of making soap for the novice is this magical description called saponification. If someone simply said, mix your lye and base together to make a slurry that forms soap, well, that doesn't sound so daunting, does it? But the second paragraph to every soap book pontificates about the mystical saponification process. And that sounds a little less approachable, right? <laughs> Hence why the buddy system was such a good approach. The truth is, when you mix lye with the base and stir it, soap forms. <laughs> Been there, done that. Now, not so intimidated by it. 
but I was still happy to have it. So, so, yeah, Bob and Sharon and Kathy with me. End of Kevin moment. Now, I don't want to make light of the soap making process because compared to some soaps that I've seen people make, ours is in the realm of mm, Play-Doh. <laughs> simple, simple, simple. It's pale brown, dull, looks like something you'd find in a gas station bathroom. But don't you hate on me, it's our soap. That we put some scents in our soap, I chose tangerine and vanilla extracts. When you make soap, you have to know that there's a cure period. And even with our Play-Doh version, there's truly some anxiety about how it's going to come out. I know I made it say it's simple, and actually it is, but if you do everything right, sometimes the soap gods will not be on your side. What can go wrong? Perhaps a bar could form a film on the outside. That's a form of soda ash. The other thing is the soap gets this mottled-looking texture where it's somewhat dry and crumbly on one side of the bar and gel-like on the other. So after you pour your soap into the silicone molds, that's how we did it, you don't know until they're fully cured whether they have some peccadillos. So you just enter into a waiting game. When we made the bars, we also used a different silicone mold for the excess product that we had, and I'm glad that we did. The first one we used this square soap making silicone made bars of soap. And actually, to be honest, I was not confident in what we were doing, so I have the recipe. I only got four bars. The true recipe that we followed would have made eight or more if you would have mixed it up. So I mixed the four, and because I didn't quite get it perfect ratio, I had more. But I knew I would have more. So I have these silicone molds that, that are used to make ice cubes. Small, thin ice cubes that you would put into a water bottle. And I poured the excess into that. And what I ended up with is like little fingers of soap. Now, two months later, because it takes two months for it to cure. That's why I'm recording this in February. It's all done. They look great. There's no powdery coating. In the beginning, there was a gel-like structure. But as they hardened off and cured... It came to one consistent color and texture, and that bars are actually hard the way you would want soap to be. They're not soft. You can't pinch them with your fingers and make indents on them. We pulled one of the finger ones out and put it next to the kitchen sink, and I've been washing my hands with it, making washing hands motion. And I have to tell you, I love it. It's not greasy. It's not slimy. It makes nice bubbles. Smells nice. Now, what it doesn't smell like is orange and tangerine, <laughs> or tangerine and vanilla. I don't know if I was cheap and didn't put enough in it, or it smells soap-like. Like, yeah, bathroom bar and a gas station soap-like. But it doesn't smell bad. It just smells kind of, I don't know. Picture what you think a bar of soap would smell like if it didn't have fragrances. It smells like that. So the box is bigger. I really enjoyed the process. And now one of two boxes is checked. The next one is to make liquid soap. We have a book about making liquid soap. There's not so much about using beeswax in it because the whole point of beeswax in soap is to make it go hard. And with liquid soap, you obviously don't want that. I, me, Kevin, have a habit of laboring over recipes on the show, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tell you this amount of that. Da, 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 da. I'm going to encourage you that if you want to put your beeswax to work, you got to buy a book on the topic and read about it. You can't follow this and say, I'm going to go make soap. And this is my recommendation for you. Follow someone who has documented the process and is strong enough and brave enough to put it in a book. Buy a good book. There's tons of great soap-making books out there. Don't go follow a website. After you learn how to make soap, you can go look at the concoctions that people come up with because that 
you know, sometimes like following beekeeping methods that you find on a Facebook page, you may not get a really good end result with that. So don't do that. Buy a, a honest to goodness real book. And maybe the one, I'll see if I can find a link to it to put in the show notes, the one that we use. So homemade soap with the beeswax base. Yes, very nice. We have more ingredients left over. And now that our bars have matured sufficiently and they turned out right, it's time to make the next step and move beyond the basic recipe to a more appealing in appearance, conventional soap. My favorite soap of all time is Dial Gold Soap. I've said that on the show. I would love to know how to make the fragrance for that. But a Dial Gel, Dial Soap has that gold gel to it. And yeah, that's what I think I'm going to try and figure out. You got to have dreams, people. So soap making with beeswax. I, I guess the last thing that I'll say is, of course, make sure you use the nicest beeswax you can render. Don't render cruddy old crappy comb. I don't think you want to wash your body with that. We had fresh capping wax that we had from harvesting recently, and it was the nicest wax. Really nice stuff. Make sure you separate that stuff off to the side, and that's what you make your cosmetics with. Soap. So nice. Topic number two, I call this one to be able to fly. For this topic, I want to contemplate the moment when you realize the wonder of bees. Imagine as a human, if you could try out a superpower, what might you wish for? I know the one for me, the thing that I've always wondered. I've dreamed about this when I was a little kid. This is what I would dream about is being able to fly. I think the closest I've ever come to it is going up in a hot air balloon and just kind of floating up. It's like the drone shots you see now, but you're standing in a basket in the balloon looking out. We flew over our area of home when I grew up. And it was really, really cool. There's something magical about that, that vision of seeing the world from an up-high perspective. I carry this notion to the honeybee in one respect. Unlike ants and spiders and such, honeybees can fly. And that in itself is amazing. The biology that accounts for that is worth a look. And that's what we're going to talk about. And thinking about the honeybee, the physical structure is a bit odd the way they're built, but as you can imagine with our honeybees, ingenious when it comes to their flight properties. I think people know that certain things about physics, someone's an aficionado of something, they can appreciate different design aspects that are on the fringe of normal. What am I talking about? Let me see. Think about a car. Most of us drive a common sedan, a SUV, something like that. But car aficionados, they realize that every once in a while somebody comes up with a model that is special in some way. In the way that it was, it's a fringe from the normal. A certain car may be understated in its appearance, but the power to weight ratio makes it a sleeper when it comes to speed. Another way to look at that is certain airplanes are adored for their wing designs and sculpted exteriors because they have that right balance of it that makes them perfect and perform in some kind of way. If you were in the know, you might look at a bee and think, that's an odd lot, that one. Look how small its wings are. Why does it flap so hard while it's flying? The fact is, honeybee wings are said to be small for its body, and in comparison to other insects, a honeybee flaps its wing in a faster refresh cycle than others. So why did nature do that? Well, like a lot of things in evolution, it's done for a purpose. As I understand it, insects with larger wings that flap slower kind of push through the air like a human doing a big powerful sweeping motion while swimming. The wings are a little stiffer, they're held in a little different way, and when that insect pushes, it gets a lot of oomph on the downward cycle. I can conjure this vision by thinking of a snow goose taking off from a pond. 
there's a lot of energy expended when a big heavy bird tries to get lift to get off the ground. But when you watch them flying overhead in the V-shaped pattern, they're flying effortlessly. In contrast, a honeybee would be a furious flapper, but with a twist. Literally. Bee wings are not as ridged, and they twist and rotate in flight. If you could picture a wing motion, you would see the wing in flight start as far back as the bee can position it, high and up over the abdomen, both of the wings back together, almost touching as they are, you know, I'm in a, you know, if you think about a skier jumping off the, the lift and they're flying through the air with their arms back, that kind of thing. And then like a sword slicing through the air, they come down and forward in an aggressive arc to where their faces are the mandible area of the bee. On the downward stroke, the wing is swept forward, and the profile of the wing allows it to be flat with the plane of the arc, with just a little twist to create the required lift that the bee needs. So they're getting efficiency on the forward stroke and the back. Both wings working in perfect tandem, they reach the forward point of motion, and then they're swept back to the starting point. On the back rotation, the wing is twisted again for the purpose of lift and propulsion. As the bee brings the wing back, the sweeping motion is a little further behind the trace of the downward stroke. To explain that in another way, if you can imagine a lit sparkler going up and down on the 4th of July, Picture a kid, you hand them a sparkler and you say, move it around. And in the dark, when they move it up and down, you see that little circle of light, you know, going up and down in singular motion. Most of the time, if you see a kid playing with it, they go straight up and down. But eventually they figure out how to go to circles and arcs and all that stuff. In the case of a honeybee, the wingtip, let's say that's the little sparkler, the light would make a banana shape. Arc down and forward to the front, then arc to the top and the back. If you repeated this with a sprinkler, sparkler, sorry, the light would resemble a narrow banana shape. That's the shape the bee tip wing makes when it's coming back and forth. Now, if you've ever seen a slow motion, high speed video of a flying bee, it's the coolest thing to see the wing motion. And it takes me back to that thing where certain people appreciate different airplanes. You watch a video of a honeybee, say, versus a bumblebee, there's a different elegance to the whole, the whole wing thing and the way that they both do it. Bee wings make short, quick, sweeping motions, and they do it at a cycle of 200 to even 230 beats a second. Why are bees different? Why did they evolve in this manner? The answer is, we all probably have figured out, work. A slower, longer motion, more common in insects, makes them more efficient at flying. They get more lift with less work. For the honeybee, however, they have different goals. They need maneuverability, maneuverability, that's a hard word to say, and of course, we know optimally they are foraging. They need to be equipped to carry heavy loads. The trade-off in wing design, specifically to the honeybee, makes them uniquely qualified to be honeybees. That's cool to appreciate because they're equipped to bring nectar and pollen back as part of their design and their flight apparatus. So let me ask you a question. I'm not going to know the answer to this. How fast does a fly fly? Have you ever contemplated that? House fly I'm talking about. Of course you have. Every time you shoo one away, you, you know, you're trying to get to the thing. Dang, it's fast. Fast enough that you can't get it with a fly swatter or a newspaper. You know, sometimes it takes a lot of acumen to get it right, to get that darn thing, because they're so fast. Well, actually, in comparison, they're dog slow. A fly flies at a rate of 4.3 miles an hour. That's seven kilometers, 
for our metric friends, KMH. A yellow jacket, another one that you might be familiar with to chase away, tops out about 7 miles an hour or 11 kilometers an hour. In general, B speeds range in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 miles per hour on the outflight. And some of them are, have even been clocked a touch faster than that. Yep, the honeybee. Faster than that. Some wasps and honeybees can fly up to 25 miles per hour, according to scientists. In buzzing terms, not too shabby. And it seems like the top speed of a flying insect is garnered by dragonflies, which can fly at 35 miles per hour, or 56 kmh. So yeah, the girls are pretty zippy because, well, they got work to do. Oh, Kevin moment. I did anamorphize the bees by calling them girls. Seems to fit the statement, so lighten up, Francis. <laughs> the name Francis Sawyer. But everybody calls me Psycho, and you guys call me Francis and I'll kill you. Blah, blah, blah. Lighten up, Francis. I forget what movie that's from. Every time I hear that, I kill you, I think of Jeff Dunham. This girl's thing, it gets under people's skin. In no honesty, I agree. Sometimes it's overused. But sometimes it's a logical, goofy way to refer to bees. And every once in a while it seems to fit. So if you see me, the Kevin, Kevin me, the EAS Master Beekeeper, or someone else, call their bees girls on occasion, well, look, a little latitude, move along, citizens. Now as to our boys, they're not as zippy. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, workers would not fly at top speed all the time, of course. Yeah. I have to say, my joke to boys, generally speaking, queens and drones fly about 12 miles an hour when they're trying to get somewhere where unloaded bees are, uh, workers are said to be about 15 or up to 20. Now, my thought is, of course, on the return trip when they're loaded, they're not flying that fast. There's really no one sitting there with a radar gun clocking the honeybee flywise. Like Bob Kloss's conjecture in a recent episode, I wonder if these numbers are bandied about through repetition and are not based so much on empirical data. But to that end, I'm going to supply a link to a research paper that did test worker flight measurements and scientifically back up that they go 15 to 20 miles an hour and some of the other numbers that I passed along. If you explore the aspect of honeybee flight, you will come to know that it is a broader system than just the wings. The wings work in harmony with the locomotor system of the bee and the visual sensors of the eyes along with the hairs and some other things. In admiring the wings of an airplane, you have to look at the fuselage and some of the other designs, too. And the honeybee's no different. The thorax is an amazing design. And to refer to it as the locomotor center of the bee is an accurate label. Locomotor being defined as pertaining to movement or set in a way that many of us associate them relating to locomotion. Do the locomotion. In a way, that locomotor of a train is its sole means of movement. And this is a tip for you, Master Beekeeper style tip. Everything that moves the bee, the legs, the wings, the muscles, and all of that stuff is in the bee's thorax. There are times when I kind of giggle when I see a picture of somebody who drew a bee and they attach the legs to the abdomen because it kind of looks like they're in the back, but they're all attached to that thorax. The interesting thing to expand, expand upon is how graceful bees are when it comes to their abilities to maneuver. As we all know, they have multiple eyes that serve to visualize the world, and their sensory perceptions are driven to send individual instructions that cause minute changes in the muscle instructions 
that make a wing turn to be to the left or turn it to the right or flap a little harder to compensate for a wind gust and all of those things. One giant system, and it truly is amazing in nature that that's all figured out. This little foray somewhat scratches the surface of a honeybee flight, but I think it's enough for now. Some other time we can come back to other aspects of load carrying and the heat properties of the muscle system pre-flight. And this time where it's freezing outside and the bees have to warm up their muscles to fly, that's kind of cool how all that works, but a little too much for right now. I'm satisfied this was a little, little cool little sojourn into the wonder of the ability to fly. And I think we can leave it here. Look for a link in the show notes to a journal article, Short Amplitude High Frequency Wing Strokes Determine the Aerodynamics of Honeybee Flights. Again, bkcorner.org, episode 188. Uh, topic done. Let's go to the local hive report. We're rolling right through this episode. You know, I don't know if I'm doing a service or a disservice. I know a lot of people listen to these podcasts to occupy their time while they're prepping stuff. And others wish I would get over with it so they can get on to whatever they have to do. In this case, I'm going to keep this episode short. In fact... I was wondering whether I had enough to record an episode. That's why I didn't put something out last weekend. And, yeah, I think I scrambled together about an hour's worth of content. So let's see if we can hit that hour mark. The local hive report, where do we stand? It snowed another 8 inches the other day. And then we had a 40-degree day. And I was walking down the road with the dog, just taking her for a little zip and encountered my beekeeping neighbors from down the road. And Jim was saying to me how his bees were flying. Never dawned on me that uh, it was above 45 degrees. Got 50 degrees for one day, teased us, then turned around and snowed the next day. But I did run back to the house, shove the dog inside, throw on a pair of boots and go out and take a look. It's kind of cool. There's nothing more serene than looking at your hives in winter with snow on the ground and fresh blanket of snow on top of the hives. And it's kind of cruddy to see dead bees out on the snow. But I just kind of softly, quietly walked up to the first hive, peeked around the front, saw bees on the front. It's neat when the sun is shining in the afternoon, warming the front of the hive, and you see the bees, they come out of the entrance and they walk down and they sit in the sun. And then they start to warm up. They fly out and then they fly back and they do their cleansing flight. And it's neat. It's just a neat thing to observe in the wintertime, especially when it's been so quiet and the bees have been sequestered. So, yeah, I got to hive number one. And I went out there with kind of my head down. Because this is a time of year where you walk out and you just don't know what you're going to find. I've been out there and seen a lot of hives flying, and I've been out there and seen one hive flying, and I honestly had no idea what we were going to get. So hive number one flying, happy, look down, see the bees on the ground, which is normal. Uh, you'll see dead bees. Sometimes they fly out, they land on the snow, and they never get up, and they look so peaceful sitting there. I've literally picked up some bees from the ground, Cupped my hands, blew on them, watched them come back to life, held them to the entrance and watched them walk back inside the hive. What they were doing out there in the snow, chilling themselves to death, I, I don't know the answer to that. I had just a few minutes before I had to go back to work, so I didn't pick up any bees. I just kind of walked around and looked to see what was going on. Pad number one, the scale hive, good. Pad number two, flying, three, flying, four, flying, yeah, everything looked good. Ultimately, the one I was worried about was down there on pad number eight, which was the top bar hive. I slowly but surely walked behind each of the hive and peeked around and saw bees coming and going. I got to pad number, uh, let's see, which I think it's six, which is the cedar hive. I didn't see any bees flying. I was a little worried about that. So I stepped along to the front of the hive looked, there were dead bees out, there were cleansing flights, there were actually uh, drops of bee poop on the, on the hive in the roof, 
And lo and behold, when I walked around front and stood there for a couple of minutes, a couple of bees came and went. So that's another thing that you're going to see. You will see bee poop. You're going to see it in the snow, especially if there's snow on the ground because it shows up. And you might see drops on the hives. And, you know, look, if you've been sequestered in that hive for so long, you never know <laughs> how long it's going to take. I was dreading walking past pad 7 where there's nothing to pad 8 to the top bar. But as soon as I walked up, I saw some dead bees in the snow and looked over and darn if there weren't a couple of bees standing on the entrance. So the top bar is still going. I've got to be truthful and say I'm surprised at that. I just didn't know. Um, as I said in the opening, it's the end of February. February 21st is almost the end, 28 days here. Usually when we get to March 1st, we'll get a break. And what I saw in the weather is we will get some 50 degree days. If we get some 50 degrees uh, days and the snow melts, I'm positive they're going to find skunk cabbage and some of those other things. This is the time where you start to see snowdrops pushing through. And as soon as I see that, I declare victory. March 1st to March 15th is usually that tedious. If we keep getting more snow, you never know. But uh, I also spoke to my brother Keith. He said his hive was good. He went out and cleaned it off and looked, and they're still alive. So how about that? That's a happy 2020 winter, 2021 start to it. Now, I had to figure out what to do to get everything prepped. This is where the pressure comes. I've talked about enough of that lately. So, yeah. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Be safe. Be well, everybody. We'll talk to you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner.